you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 13. Our text today does a really good job of showing us the reality of what we just sang. That this ancient foe doth seek to work woe. He has great craft and great power, but we see even in all the schemes that Christ triumphs. So we're back in John's Gospel. This morning, John chapter 13, we'll pick up in verse 21, which is where we left off and read to the end of the chapter. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, would you help us? Lord, we're being invited here to see glory. The splendor of you and what you have done for our world. Without your spirit, we have no hope of seeing this. So would you be at work shaping us, molding us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I enjoyed our excursion into Hebrews through the Advent season, but I'm excited to get back into John. 
Um, just by way of reminder, uh, a, a few things to, to remember. John gives this vast introduction at the beginning of his gospel. It's huge. In the prologue, he, he's putting forward Jesus in um, as big a, a possible, uh, using terms that are easy to understand, but he's, he's making Jesus as big as you can possibly imagine. He's huge. Just listen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Then, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's huge. He has always existed. There never was a time when He did not exist. Further, He made all things by the word of His power. And then finally, that, that beauty, that glory, that power became incarnate. He was a person. John then goes on to, to split his narrative really into to two big parts. The, the first set that we have already gone through is called the Book of Signs. And there he lays out who Jesus is, and Jesus goes about performing incredible signs. And sitting beside those, there are seven I am statements of Jesus. And, and all during those signs, he'll do something great, and then we see something happen. We see a whiplash come against Jesus. A growing hostility. So he's doing these, these great signs, more and more signs, and there's, as he's doing those signs, there's more and more hostility. More and more people hate him. And finally, his good buddy Lazarus gets sick. And instead of going to heal him, Jesus waits and Lazarus dies. And we remember what happens, right? This, this ultimate sign, Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend and shouts, Lazarus, come out. And he does. And then they really hate him, and they really want him dead. And then there's this transition to the, the second half of the book, some have called the, the book of glory, which will run from chapter 13 all the way to 20, and this will contain the farewell discourse of Jesus, where he's saying goodbye. It will also contain the glory of the cross and the resurrection. Coming closer to our text, we, we know that the disciples are inside with Jesus. The last time we were together in John, we were looking at Jesus washing their feet. So they're in the, they're in the upper room. This is, this is it. This is that moment. They're having that meal right here. Following the instruction of Jesus, what he said, I do not, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. P Peter invited him, like, come on, not just, right, not, not just my hands, my head, everything, my feet, wash all of me. That's a, a, that's a right response to that. And similar to that, we're going to see in our text, Jesus is, is talking about service there. Here he's going to be talking about love. 
What's fascinating to me about this passage and the reason we did all of it in, in, in one chunk is this. It makes like a sandwich. Mark did, did this a lot as well. The, the text is kind of like a sandwich. And the top of the sandwich, this top layer, is betrayal. The betrayal of Jesus by a disciple. The bottom layer of the sandwich is the denial of Jesus by another disciple. So if you have betrayal and denial, what do you think goes in the middle? It's got to be something terrible, right? Glory. Glory is in the middle. Beauty. And a command to love. It really is astonishing. You have to see it all together to to really get the middle. You have to see what's on the outside. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be denied. And in the middle, his glory is on display. And he is telling us to love one another. So let's look at each part. First, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Jesus had given a veiled reference to his betrayal earlier. But now it comes out more plainly. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Not just his outer countenance, not just his body, the inward part of him was troubled. I think references like this, I don't know about you, but they really help me. And here's what they do. They, they combat... Um, They combat an impulse that sometimes I think exists in all of us. We all so believe in the divinity of Christ that we sometimes forget that he's fully God, but he's he's fully man. How can a being who is fully God be troubled in in his spirit, inside of him? Because I think we all know what that's like. We've all had those experiences of, I'm deeply troubled in my heart right now. Not just the way I look, not just my countenance inside, maybe where you can't see. We've all had that. And the text today is telling us that Jesus knows what that is like. That he has experienced that. Sometimes if, if we look at Jesus and, and say he just, he just appears to, to be a man, that's not good. In fact, it's a, that's an ancient heresy. He didn't just appear to be a man. He is a man. He is a man who was troubled down to the marrow of his bones because he was about to be betrayed. Jesus was a man who was facing betrayal, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will do it. One of you will do it. So they knew it was somebody close, and they were wondering, who could it be? But now they're in the room with Jesus, and they're wondering, who is it? Have you ever been betrayed? Do you know what that's like? It happens a lot in middle school. I think everybody gets betrayed in middle school at some point. But sometimes we're betrayed as adults. 
You, you thought you knew someone. You, you thought you had a relationship with them that, that was more than what it is because one day you find out, oh no, they really don't like me at all. And they're, they're selling me out here relationally. Take heart, child of God, in your fellowship with Christ, knowing that he knows the keen sting of betrayal from someone very close to him. Isn't that good news? Our Savior has gone before us. George Herbert captures this well. Mine own apostle who did the bag bear, though he had all I had, did not forbear to sell me also and put me there was ever grief like mine. Notice the reaction of the disciples. I think this is hilarious to this very clear statement. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, dead silence, and everybody's looking at everybody else. Could you imagine the way this hit this room? It had to drop like a bomb. It's not just somebody that's close to us, guys. It's one of you, one of the 12. You're sitting right here eating with me. It's going to be one of you. And it just says they all looked at one another. <laughs> I just imagine that being a hilarious scene. And, and a, a terrible one, but silence. They're quiet. We like super clean lines. We like a bad guy who looks like a bad guy and acts like a bad guy. If the bad guy can just wear a black hat, we'll be good. Everybody will know he'll come in the room. He's about to get it. The guy with the white hat is going to come over and, and take care of him. Here's the thing, though. Judas didn't look like a bad guy. I think we, ch we change Judas a lot in, in our minds. He slinks around like he's this little shifty guy with a black hat. That's not him at all. He was extremely trusted among the disciples. He's the dude who carried the money bag. Many people think, many commentators, many scholars think in this text, by virtue of some things that go on, he's in the honored place in the room to the left of the Lord. He's not a dude wearing a black hat. He's not wearing a mask. He doesn't look like he's possessed. Don't think like that. They have no idea. And here's the thing. People can look really good on the outside, not slinking around, not wearing a black hat, not looking shifty, not acting strange and have evil inside. Far from the Lord. So then we read Peter takes action. That shouldn't surprise us. He's not sitting next to Jesus, but he, he, he gets John's attention. Hey, hey, ask him, who's it going to be? We have to understand, rather than sitting down at the feast and, and earlier in this, this very feast, this Passover feast, they would actually eat standing, anticipating, hey, it's, it's time to go. You eat this whole meal standing up, ready to leave, right? They're anticipating what the Lord is doing to redeem them. Here we see them reclining at table. It's very interesting. It's a relaxed posture. It's saying it's a feast that says this, we're not in a hurry. Why is that? 
It's this, because the Passover lamb is here. They're not in a hurry to get anywhere because the lamb is right here with them. It's, it's a really interesting shift that takes place. So here they are reclining at table. No need to rush. The new exodus is here. What can we make of this statement? Um, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Scholarship and church history hold, and I think for really good reason, that this is John, the son of Zebedee, the one who penned this gospel account. He would keep his name in the back in the background while calling attention to his relationship to Christ. And I think it holds important lessons for us. One of the lessons is this, even as Jesus is being betrayed, when John thinks back on these events to pen his narrative, to record them, he's saying that even here, even in this dark and quiet moment in the upper room, Jesus loved his friend. Jesus loved his friend. Do we have room for a Jesus who had friends? You should. He did. He loved John. What a fantastic lesson. And child of God, if in that moment where Jesus is, is being betrayed, he's, he's about to be betrayed, John can reflect back and say, the disciple whom Jesus loved was there with him. How, how much greater right now with Jesus high, lifted up, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, how much more can we see him loving us? There's a sense in which every single one of us here today that are in Christ, that are disciples of Jesus can call ourselves the disciple who Jesus loved. Rosalie, the disciple who Jesus loved. Jeff, the disciple who Jesus loved. Mark, the disciple who Jesus loved. Megan, the disciple who Jesus loved. I could go on and on and on and read the members of our church. Isn't that astounding? text says that John was reclining with Jesus. Peter catches his attention. Who was he talking about? The question at least had some measure of privacy. Maybe they were too scared. Like, is it me? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, it happened right away. Some people think right and left. Jesus is clearly serving this feast. He's the master of the feast. He's the one who made preparations for it in the other Gospels. We read that. It would not have been uncommon for him to have been serving as the master of this and to, to talk about the meaning of the feast as they ate it. Newbegin has this interesting statement. Listen to this. The final act of love becomes with a terrible immediacy the decisive moment of judgment. This love, this loving act of Jesus to Judas is also an act of judgment, he says. We would have hoped and wished and wanted that Jesus could have persuaded Judas by serving him. 
And yet that becomes the very moment that things change. Judas' hardened, his resolve stands to leave the upper room and make his transaction. We read in 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. What an interesting thought. The prince of darkness grim. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Earlier we read that Satan had put it into his heart. Here, Satan is entering Judas. Like, what's going on there? And I don't know. It's horrible. Jesus responded so all could hear. Go, do your business quick. The question here, the the interesting thing is, he's telling him to go with haste. And that, that leads me to the question, who's really in control of these events? I think it's obvious Jesus is in complete control. His betrayal was known beforehand. It's still terrible. I'm I'm not trying to take away from it being a horrible thing, but even in this terrible moment of his life, Jesus is in control because he, he is fully submitted to the will of God. Christ is powerful, even over the will of Satan. The statement of Jesus again leaves some confusion in the room. They don't understand why Jesus said this. Is he sending him out to get more food? Are we about to run out? Since Judas has the money bag, is he sending him to buy stuff for the poor or give to the poor? And then verse 30 we read, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And then this ominous statement, it was night. It was night. Darkness had fallen in more ways than one. John has already told us what to expect. What what should we expect when the light of the world experiences darkness? John 1.5 The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He leaves and it was night. He's leaving and he's going to be betrayed. He's leaving and Jesus is about to be on trial and flogged and killed on on a cross. And it's night, but the darkness has not overcome the light. So with all that being in the backdrop, what would you expect Jesus to talk about now? Maybe some long discourse on being loyal. That would be really good. If he could just tell us how good we should be, then then he would straighten the disciples out and nothing like this would ever happen again. Like, you be loyal. See see what he did? See how bad he is? And see how good you are? Now just keep being good. That's what they need right here in the upper room, right? Moralism. Rules. He goes to glory when... He had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. This is a terrible moment. This is a dark place in all of redemptive history. And Jesus is saying, right now is the Son of Man glorified. Judas is working his way through the streets of Jerusalem, going to make this evil transaction where he'll sell out a friend and his Lord for the price of a slave. And Jesus is saying, this is glory. Look, pay attention.
Jesus again brings in the, the title Son of Man. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Let's be reminded that this title goes back to Daniel chapter 7. This should stun us. This moment of glory that we've all been waiting for concerning this great title, the Son of Man who's high and lifted up, who, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords ruling over all the earth. Here He is. This is His moment. The moment of betrayal. Verse 32 goes further. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The splendor of God is going to be on display in the work of Christ. And the work of Christ is going to glorify the Father. J.C. Ryle comments, the Son shows the, son shows the world by his death how holy and just is the Father. And how he hates sin. And the Father shows the world by raising and exalting the Son to glory. How he delights in the redemption for sinners which the Son has accomplished. End quote. What's underlying all this glory? How, how can the light shine at such a dark time? And the answer is love. Love is the reason. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. How do we know that love is what is behind these statements of glory? Look at the way that Jesus applies this talk about glory. It's not moralism. It's rooted in His love for us, little children. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The Father and the Son are about to glorify one another. And this glory translates to us in this way, love, love. Listen to the tenderness of Jesus, little children. Hear his heart for them. He's facing something, he's about to walk through something that, where they can't go. They're gonna be separated from him. Have you ever had that moment when you were a kid where you got separated from your parents? Maybe at Disney World, maybe at a shopping mall, maybe in a, in a big store. What's that like? Is it a super comfortable moment? No, it's terrifying. You're there with all these grown-ups around you, and you're just this little kid, and suddenly you don't know where your parents are. At that point, you feel very, very small. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, that's you, and I know it's you. And you're about to feel like that with me gone. You're going to be terrified. He knows that they're going to want to be with him. You're going to want to be with me. You're going to be scared. You're going to feel alone. What do we do then? Love each other. They'll have each other. Love each other. How do we today experience the tangible love of Christ? 
We love each other. He's high and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. If we can't can't have his embrace, then whose? We love each other. That's exactly what he's saying. I'm going away and you'll have each other. Love each other. That is his command to us. That is the tangible expression of Christ's love for his church, is the love that we have for one another. Let's go back. Why did Jesus call this commandment new? We know again from our Old Testament reading in Leviticus 19 that the command to love others has been in place. Jesus taught that the love of God and neighbor summarized the whole law and the prophets. So how is this commandment new? I think we could talk about 10, 15, 20 ways, but I'll just talk about a a few. The first is the object of love is is expanded, not just neighbors, but love one another, not just those in proximity to you. Because of the incredible love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, it is sufficient for the whole world. Our love should extend to others across the world. Love one another. Ephesians chapter 2 summarizes this. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There he's talking about the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Greeks. But what about the hostility we have with our fellow man? He's saying the love of Christ should come to to bear in, in, in our lives for all people, love one another. I think another, not just its object is expanding, but this love has a new measure attached to it. Not just any love, but as Christ has loved us. How did Christ love us? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And this certainly doesn't mean that if I love you, I'm going to die in your place. I can't do that. My my death will not save your soul. His alone can do that. But it is calling us to love with the character of Christ, which is sacrificial in nature. True Christian love involves a long sequence of little deaths little deaths as we turn aside turn away our pride our envy tiny little deaths I love reading 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings don't you love that text the force of Paul's argument there is not just the quality of love between a husband and a wife. I think it absolutely applies. But it is for us, it is for the people of God, the, the qualities of love that we should have for one another. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Yes, this is how Christian husbands and wives should interact, but it's how we should interact with one another, with everyone. There's another way in which this commandment is 
new and, and that's the power that can bring it about. This love is rooted and grounded in the gospel itself. The finished work of Christ for sinners. And here's the thing, we're never going to get this kind of love until we get the gospel itself. If I just tell you to go love somebody, it's great, it's got no power. Hey, here's this kind of unlovable character over here. I want you to get up and go over there and love them. Great. No, that has no power. The power of this new command that comes from the power of the gospel itself being at work in the hearts of believers. You have been loved incredibly by God himself. Let that love so fill you that you can't help but go love the unlovable. Jesus says that this kind of love would be one of the things that marks the church out in in all the world. Acts of loving generosity are to be what the world looks at and sees when they look at the church. Our world, much like his, lacks genuine love for others. Jesus says that this love will, will mark the church as the real thing. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That demands a real scary question. What what does it say about us if we're not loving? I'm not arguing that we'll ever get this 100% right. I'm not arguing that we're 100% perfect and our love will never be there until we're in glory. But truly... What is Jesus implying about his church if we are not loving? After the service, you should go reread that quote by Calvin at the beginning of the order of worship. Very convicting. So in the face of betrayal, Jesus presents us with glory. His betrayal means his, his splendor. His, this, is, this is a moment of splendor. He doesn't focus on Judas. He focuses on the glory of the Father and the love of his people for one another. What would you expect the disciples to ask about? I would expect them to ask about the glory. Tell us more about this relationship that you have with the Father. And he is going to go on to expand on that. Or I would, I would ask him to expand on this love and this situation. But you know where Peter focuses? He goes right to this issue of where are you going? And why can't I go with you? So much like Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Like so many of us, Peter's greatest weakness is his perceived strength. He thinks he's got enough. He's the real believer. It's clearly not me who's denying you, Jesus. It's clearly not me who's betraying you. And in that pride, in that pride, he utterly misses something. He, he is, listen, it is very comfortable to be in the room with Jesus 
and there's not a threat. Everybody's in good shape. We're all good to go, Jesus. I'm with you. It's a totally different thing when it's night and Jesus is under arrest and questions are being asked around the courtyard. Hey, aren't you one of his followers? It's a totally different ballgame then. Jesus does tell him, you're not going to follow me where I'm going yet. Some three decades later, he actually will. He will also walk a, a, a terrible road to his own death. We'll have more to say about that when it happens and when reconciliation comes later in chapter 21. For now, I think we're right to celebrate the fact that we are pilgrims on a journey just like Peter. It would be easy to say, Peter, you bonehead. Keep your mouth closed. You don't know what it's going to be like in the next day or two. Shut it. It would be so easy to do that. But Peter, like all of us, is on a journey with our our Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship with him. Jesus was not done with Peter. Thank the Lord we are not who we once were, and in Christ we are not who we will become. All of us are on this journey with Jesus, and this journey, like it is with Peter, is a journey down, not up. That's where all of us are called to go. Not living with Him in pride and arrogance, not having everything figured out ourselves. We're not strong enough. We too need Christ. We aren't called to save Jesus. I will lay down my life for you. That's not the call. We are not called to save Jesus. He came to save us. Listen, you will never, you will never ever outdo him. You will never outlove Jesus. You will never outsacrifice him. Submit to Him. Submit to Him in our strengths and in our weaknesses. So what I want us to be astonished about today is sandwiched between the betrayal of a close friend and the coming denial of another close friend that Jesus gives us a shining, radiant light. He talks about glory. He talks about this being the moment where the Father is glorifying Him and and He is glorifying the Father. And this radiance, though the darkness is here, this radiance cannot be overcome. And what is the application for us? It's so great. This is a preacher's dream. It's clear because it's right here. The application for us is to love one another. Grace prays in the power of Christ and his gospel at work in you. Love one another. Let's pray. Father, would you help us do this? May we love one another, not just um, the ways that we see fit, but love sacrificially. Lord, this goes against so many of our instincts. Uh, We often love ourselves. Would you shape us in your love? Lord, may we know the 
the love of your gospel for us and be so filled that we would love one another like that. Die a thousand little deaths. Lord, all of this, again, is impossible unless you're at work. So would you be at work in us today? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.